Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. no secret that music is powerful. Amen? Music is powerful. Research shows that music can bring healing to our lives. Actually, some people casually or professionally use music to help them get through life. You probably do yourself. In fact, there are music therapists believe it or not, who say that music can help people sleep, process emotions, lower blood pressure, strengthen the immune system, manage pain better, improve relationships, self-regulate, and enhance learning and memory retention. That's a pretty impressive claim, isn't it? As for the enhanced learning and memory retention part, this is why you can't remember what I preached on a month ago or maybe a week ago, but you can remember that song that your mom taught you when you were five years old, right? Because it was put to music. Music helps you remember things. But think about this too. There's a link between the music, you could say this with anything really we expose ourselves to, but really between music that we expose ourselves to and the choices that we make, there's a link between them, between the music we listen to and the choices that we make. And they say music is the window to the soul, right? It reaches the deepest parts of who you are and it affects your thinking patterns. It affects your worldview, what you think about yourself and others and the world. And so, therefore, it affects the decisions that you make. And in the San Quentin prison in California, there are, or there used to be at least, some inmates who called themselves through the walls. Through the walls. They wanted to influence people through the walls of the prison with their positive music. And they do this, they, they, this was their mission because they believe that Negative music, some of the the rap music they used to listen to or sing with immoral lyrics is what helped put them behind those walls. The music they used to listen to, the music they used to sing and create is what put them behind those walls because it influenced them that much. And they will actually tell people not to listen to their old music uh, just because they realized there was no life-giving message in it. It wasn't positive. It was destructive. And it was harmful to people. And they, they have a sense of responsibility now in that. And, and then there's the story of a school teacher who started playing Mozart each day at the beginning of class when the kids came in. And obviously the kids hated it. Right? They, they said they didn't like it, but she just ignored them, and she kept ignoring them. And she kept playing it, and they got used to it. And 
And it, she said that in time, their, their academic scores went up. And the misbehavior actually went down. And that sort of study has been duplicated in the university environment as well. So music is powerful. It's life-shaping stuff. And we're going to talk a lot about music today and preaching. Two things that we listen to that are very powerful and can have an influence on our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about as we revisit our, our theme for this year called Created to Worship. Um, every now and then throughout the year, we have revisited this idea of worship, and first we defined it. Uh, it's, it's living in response to God at all times. That's worship. Uh, maybe a proper and engaging response to God embodied in the totality of one's lifestyle. That's a great definition of worship. Uh, it encompasses the totality of one's life and de- decisions. And so, therefore, if that's true, then worship can bring meaning and purpose to even the most mundane aspects of our lives. Um, even, I like to think often, right, changing a diaper, washing the dishes, cleaning, sweeping the floor, driving down the road, whatever we do, we can do it in worship to God and in a way that glorifies God if our heart is right. And we also looked at how the Bible says we become like what we worshiped. We had an interesting message on idolatry there. Now we looked at some of the different ways that we worshiped uh, on a personal level, how we might all have slightly different worship temperaments. And then we discussed generosity as worship and work as worship. That's what we have have uh, talked about so far this year. And that last one, right, work is worship. Our country needs that, doesn't it? I mean, it can be an adventure <laughs> just going out to eat these days because of the, the work ethic today. So we our, our culture has lost the idea that work is worship. But... Uh, the one we're going to talk about today is the last one there, corporate worship. This is the one that most people think of when they hear the word worship. They think of singing at church or some sort of formal corporate worship service in a local church. And as I've mentioned that before, that's normally what we think of. We think of a formal corporate worship service when we think of that word worship. And so therefore we think, well, I'm going to go to worship on Sunday for an hour and then the rest of the week I'm just going to go do my own thing. But corporate worship on Sunday like we're doing right here is just another form of worship. Another part of our worship. And uh, so it's not just an hour on Sunday. It's not even just the singing part of the service. That would That's a very unspiritual uh, minded trap I think that we fall into is to think that it's only on Sunday or it's only the singing in the service that's worship. It's so much more than that, right? But it doesn't mean we should think lightly of or think less of corporate worship gatherings. Uh, corporate worship gatherings that are dominated by preaching and by singing uh, these these public religious services and activities that we hold in a local church setting are an integral part of a Christian's worship. In fact, I would be so bold as to say that a Christian's worship and sanctification is going to be incomplete 
without this setting, without corporate worship. Your worship is incomplete. And that's why Paul says in Hebrews 10, you know, don't, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Encourage one another. Keep meeting together. Don't stop because we need the church body as a whole to sanctify each other. Does that make sense? You, I mean, Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 12 as a body, like a human body, right? Christ is the head and we're individually members of it. Well, if I'm just, a, you know, a finger or something and, and I'm not connected to the body, I'm pretty useless. And I'm not going to be fully functioning. So there's my argument for that. But uh, there's a lot of ministries out there that are, are doing a lot of good outside the local church. But we should never forget that the local church is the number one strategy of God in the world today to reach the world and minister to the world. And it hasn't changed in 2,000 years. The local church is his number one strategy. God loves the local church. Paul, the apostle Paul, was a church-planting freak. I love the local church. I consider myself a local church freak. And that came about as a result of my time in South America. In South America, I was involved in a parachurch ministry, a ministry outside the church. And we were going to different churches every single weekend, three or four churches on a, in a weekend. And it drove me insane after a while because I wasn't connected to a local church and growing with them, getting to know them, getting to know the Lord together, walking with the Lord together. It drove me bonkers. I didn't even know it would, but it did. And after that, I became just like, I became sold out on the local church and how important it is to people's spiritual health. And, you know, even if you are in a parachurch ministry of some kind, you should be involved in a local church somewhere in attending corporate worship gatherings. Live streaming, I love it. But I hate it at the same exact time. Because it is not church. It's not. You don't, it's like a fake fireplace I read this week. It's like, it's like you know, you have these fake fireplaces on the wall where you, you see the fire but you don't feel the heat. That's what it's like worshiping online. And I like it if you're sick or whatever, but please come. Don't assume that that's enough. We need to gather. We need to come together to worship. So anyway, my rant is through on that. Let's focus on Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Uh, that was our preparation for it. Colossians 3, 12 through 17 is our passage, but uh, our emphasis is mostly going to be on verse 6. This is one of those verses, chapter 3, verse 16, one of those verses that every Christian and every local church should have down. I mean, basically memorized, because it's that important to our operation as Christians and as a, a local church. So let's read these verses here. It says, So as those who have been chosen of God... Holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And I kind of want to add to that, sorry, in, in brackets, 70 times 7, right? 
70 times 7, Jesus said, keep forgiving, don't stop. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let me say that again. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Isn't that a precious portion of Scripture? It was so good to my soul this week to study this. This week. I, man, it was, it was a game changer. But in the context of this book, Paul has established, number one, who Christ is. That's like the purpose of this book. Paul is reminding the Colossians that Jesus Christ is supreme. He is all supreme. He's our all-sufficient Lord he has also established who we are in Christ. Because through, through faith in Christ, we've been united with Christ. Through the working of the Holy Spirit and regeneration, and we have new life in Christ because we are united with Him. So positionally, He will say that you are seated with Christ right now at the right hand of God. He'll say things like, you have died And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And because of that position that you have in Christ, you you chosen and holy set apart and beloved ones, he says the condition of your life should change. Because of your position in Christ, your condition, right, your behavior, your lifestyle should change. And so in a clothing motive, basically, Paul talks about, and he does this elsewhere, we're familiar with this, he says, put off some things and put on other things. Right? Because you are chosen by God, you are holy, you're beloved of God, you're in Christ, you have this amazing position in Christ, he says then, put off the sin. Put off the sinful ways. That's not, that doesn't line up with who you are anymore. Put off the sinful ways and then put on Christ-like virtues. Like what you see there, right? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. Put off the what? The, the, the ra- anger, the wrath, the malice, the slander, the abusive speech. Put off the lies. And then put on compassion, patience, love. That's, that's the context that, that we are in, and it's an amazing thing. But while it's, I would say, easy to pick up on the individual commands in this passage, you might have also noticed that there are corporate commands as well, right? Corporate commands, you might have noticed that. that these are social virtues. These aren't just individual virtues. It's... it's 
social virtues, being kind and forgiving and loving and forbearing. He talks about how they're called into one body, how there's, you know, there, there, there's some one anothering going on there. He's talking about unity. And so this is instruction not just for individual Christians, but for a local church body. He's saying, this, is, this, guys is, this is how you get along. This is how you're going to conduct a worship service. And this is what your worship service should look like. And as you see in verse 16, and as you see in, the, in our church today, services are going to be dominated by, number one, preaching and teaching God's word, and then number two, singing. That's what you see in verse 16. Let's focus on the first half, which is corporate worship under the word of God. Paul says, let the message of Christ, or the word of Christ, dwell within you richly. Some translate that as, let the word of Christ dwell among you instead of within you. Uh, because it is another acceptable translation. However, however you interpret it or however your Bible interprets it, it doesn't really change the intention uh, of what's going on because in order for the, the word of Christ to dwell among us as a church, it's got to dwell within us individually, right? The word of God has to have a home in our hearts. In Colossae, uh, to the original audience, the word of Christ is contrasted with the word of false teachers who were deluding Christ's deity. They were saying Christ is just another God, lowercase g, or he's just an angel of some kind. Actually, guys, there's a lot of debate over the, what the heresy was at Colossae that, that Paul's arguing against. And basically all we have is the book of Colossians to find out what this heresy was. And, and it's so frustrating to me because... Um, because, the, did you know, sorry, this is the archaeology guy coming out again, but that Colossae has never been excavated. It's just a hill in a farmer's field. It's never been excavated, and so I'm just like, I'm anxious. I've, been, I've prayed for a couple years now, like, Lord, excavate Colossae so we can figure something out about this ancient site. And maybe we'll learn more about the heresy that was there, too. You know, you might find different art, idols and manuscripts and things. But, uh, moving on. Uh, these false teachers there were clearly deluding Christ's deity, and they were deluding, therefore, the gospel of grace. They were introducing man-made traditions, religious rules, and, and a bunch of human philosophies that they called wisdom. They presented their ideas as wisdom. They're saying, if you really want to be wise, you've got to be in our group. They would say, Christ is not enough. You also have to have such and such. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to learn from us if you really want to be wise. And, and so Paul is saying, don't let those man-made mystical religious teachings dwell among you. He's saying, let the word of God dwell among you, not that. Don't, don't let that junk into your congregation to stay. Let the word of God and the gospel in and let the gospel unpack its bags and dwell among you. You know, don't kick, kick the false teachers out, basically, and the false wisdom and make room for God's true wisdom in Christ. In fact, Colossians 2, 3, he says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ himself. He's saying, you don't, you don't need anything but Christ. You don't, you don't need all that man-made religious junk. 
You just need Jesus. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells. In him, you have been made complete, he says. And problems arise when we forget that and we lose our focus on Christ and we lose our focus on his word. That word dwell is significant here, though. It it carries the idea of permanent residence. Permanent residence. When you think of someone dwelling somewhere, that's what you think of. That's their home. Your home is your dwelling. Your family dwells with you. You, They live with you day in and day out. And that's how the Word of God should be in your life and in mine. It should have a home in our daily lives. It shouldn't be a, a temporary house guest who comes and goes or just stops by for a, a visit every now and then. We should have the Word of God and the Gospel dwelling in our lives. Uh, some folks, many Christians, I think, treat the Word of God like, like it's a, a temporary house guest that only wants to stop by every now and then. And, uh, you know, we get our a Bible verse here and there from, from, from a preacher or Facebook or Instagram or something like that. But, but a lot of Christians don't let the Word of God dwell with them richly and abundantly. And that's what richly means. It might, you might translate it abundantly. Let it dwell abundantly like a, like a family member or spouse. Let it come in. Let them, let them unpack the bags kind of thing. And so that's, that's why my challenge to the church right now in, in your bulletin is to set a goal to read the entire Bible next year. Uh, if you've never done that, that's so so critical to have been through God's word I mean just I'm not saying it's easy but nothing really is right that's that's of great value you know it's anything that's worth it is going to require some discipline and some effort right So it is with reading the Word of God. I would challenge you to read this. I mean, three chapters a day, you'll have it read in a year. And so what if you don't finish it in a year? You know, so you miss a few days. Who cares, right? Just keep reading it. And and just be a steady reader. Make it a a, a habit, a practice to to read your Bible, um, even on on a daily level. Personally, I... Sorry, I can't imagine... Dying and standing before God and him asking me, hey, what would you think of my word? And I go, well, it's not like he doesn't know, right? How I, Anyway, how I acted on earth. But I can't imagine having to say to him, well, I was just too busy for your word, actually. There's just too many YouTube videos, too many podcasts to actually read it. You know, I just, I liked the news a lot better. Or something like that. So I, <laughs> I guess, I guess, a little guilt trip, right? But it's true. I can't imagine standing before God saying, "I know, I never, I actually just, I had all that time. I just never took time. I, I would spend hours on Facebook or YouTube or whatever every day, but I just never opened Your Word." People who prioritize the Word of God, and let it dwell richly in their lives by reading it, studying it, meditating upon it, are people who grow. These are the Christians who grow. This is the Christians who have their lives changed. The Word will transform your life if you let it dwell within you. 
studies show that in contrast, those who do not let the word of God dwell richly within them experience little or no change at all in their lives. But the same could be said for some churches. There should be, in the public gathering of Christians, a proclamation and an impartation of the word of God and of the gospel. People need that. To be fed, they need it to be built up through... Paul mentions teaching and admonishment. Teaching would be, in a positive sense, kind of a constructive edification. And admonishment would be more like correction. It's a negative form of instruction. Like kind of the do's and and the don'ts. And that's why he gives men spiritual gifts for preaching and teaching to build up the body of Christ. And don't forget that Teaching and preaching of the word of God, this is part of worship. It's not like we sing some songs and we worship and then we sit down and we, we listen to the preacher and, and we, we stop worshiping. You know, this is, you are surrendering your, your heart and mind to God's word. I mean, you're sitting under God's word, his authority. Uh, you are giving your heart and mind to him in worship right now. You are giving him your bodies. You could be doing something else, right? You could be bowling or, I don't know, sleeping still, watching the Discovery Channel on your couch. But you're not. You're here worshiping. Praise God for you guys. You are the resistance in this country (laughs) against darkness. Just by coming to church, bringing your family to church, you are the resistance against an ungodly agenda. You're worshiping here. With, you're, you're, you're having your attitudes, your minds, your, your life shaped by the word of God. And, and uh, it's an amazing thing to think that way. But uh, there is a danger today in churches. It's no, mis, you know, no secret that a lot of churches are going to minimize God's words today. And Paul wrote about this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. 3 verses 16 through 17. Paul adjured Timothy by the heavenly court of God, to preach the word of God in season and out of season. No matter what season it is, he says, just keep preaching the word of God. Because a time is going to come when people won't endure the truth of God's word. They want to have their ears tickled, essentially. They want to hear only the good, you know, only good news type of stuff. They want to have TED Talks. And fluffy messages that make them feel good about themselves. And they don't want to hear any correction. And when we read that in 2 Timothy 3, we can't help but look around and be like, oh, that kind of looks like our day. There's just a lack of simple Bible teaching in many churches today. Far more attention, I think, is given to entertainment and those those self-help messages and man-made traditions then to the truth of God's word. And in many churches where the word of God is opened, it's like, okay, we'll preach this, but we'll skip this because this part's difficult, right? Next page or next book even. Like, let's only preach the easy books. Let's not get into the difficult ones. And that's why we make it a point in this church to go through Books of the Bible, we spend most of our time working through books of the Bible. We want to get to know the books of the Bible. And and it's hard on me, but we don't want to skip over the difficult stuff, do we? We want the full counsel of the Word of God. And that's my aim as as, as a pastor here is 
to preach and teach the whole counsel of God slowly, steadily, just working our way through the scriptures and to do it in such a way that's accessible to everybody here. I'm at times uh, going to preach over your head. I understand that. There's, a, there's intentional because we need to grow. If I say a big word, look it up. Don't expect me to you know, define it every time. You need to personally invest yourself in the study of the word of God. But I also want to preach in such a way that anybody here can get something out of it as well. That's, that's my goal. I also kind of push us. I know I do this. And I do this intentionally. But I push us beyond the average 30-minute sermon here. I don't know if you noticed that. Part of that's just my personality. I get done typing what I want to say, and I'm like, oh, it's the same length again. But part of it is TikTok has ruined us. We're so fat. Our attention span is weak. It's weak. And so I try to push back against that by preaching a sermon that's a little bit longer than most. It's, it's very intentional. I just want you to know that. But here's why this is important. Because if we're going to worship God acceptably, be it corporately as a church body or be it individually, we have to be rooted in God's word, right? We want every aspect of our lives and the function of our church to be informed by and to be governed by the authority of God's word because that's how he is actually going to be glorified and worshipped in our church and in our lives. God is not glorified by a church that fails to heed his word and is practicing all sorts of things that are unbiblical. A church, that kind of church, may be acceptable to men and to the world, but it's not going to be acceptable to God. We want the Word of God to dwell richly among us. We want the Word of God to saturate and permeate our lives and our church. And Paul commands us to do that. He says, let. In the Greek, that's a command, actually. He says, let the word of God dwell among you richly. And so the question becomes to us, then are we letting God's word richly dwell within our lives? Are we letting it dwell within our church? Now the second uh, note, point in your outline is that corporate. we're going to look at corporate worship and song. We've looked at corporate worship under the word, now we'll look at corporate worship in song. And here we want to focus on the other part of verse 16, which says, uh, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And should we be surprised that, that worship in song follows an emphasis on God's word? And I don't think so, and here's why. Because wherever there is a spiritual revival or a Christian awakening or some kind, or a healthy church somewhere, it's always followed by joyful and grateful singing. Singing and the word go together. It's natural, I think, for those who understand God's word and what Christ has done for them to express their gratefulness in song. When our, the buckets, I guess, of our lives are full to the brim with God's word and with the realities of the gospel... We have Christ, we're going to have Christ's peace ruling in our hearts. Because we're, we're focused on Him, we're focused on what He's done for us, 
And the result of that is that we spill forth in song. It's like you want to sing because you're, and that's why, guys, I'm not, sometimes I'm not ready to preach until our worship team leads us in worship because my heart's just not there yet. And something about the singing and the truths that we sing sort of, it fills you with the spirit and, and then I'm ready to preach. It's, it's, I can't tell you how many Sundays have been like that. I would say the word-filled Christian is going to be a spirit-filled Christian and thus a song-filled Christian. That's the natural progress. But another reason why we shouldn't be surprised is because music and singing are actually part of the teaching ministry of the church. It's part of teaching. And so singing, we might say, is instructive. We should be committed to the public reading and singing of Scripture because it, uh, it's part of teaching in the church. A lot of scripture is songs. The book of Psalms is the songbook of the Bible. There's songs all throughout the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it wasn't only meant to be read, it was meant to be sung. If only we knew Hebrew, right? We could see how even more glorious the Psalms are in the original language. We just, we just don't see it, we miss that. But uh, they were meant to be sung. They're songs. And we learn a lot of scripture and truth through songs. We memorize scripture and doctrines through singing. Singing is part of how we make sure that the truth dwells within us. Music makes the truth stick. It helps us memorize, remember. It also counsels us and ministers to us in ways that preaching sometimes can't. And I personally, I can't imagine a church without singing. Wouldn't that be weird? I just thought about that this morning. A church without singing. That'd be pretty lame, right? That's why the music team is, is so important. Why I'm just so appreciative of you guys this morning. Um, thank you for your service of worship and, and your sacrifice for this church family. You guys are such a blessing. And if, if the Lord leads, I'd encourage you to get involved in it as well. Um, they're a great group. But not long ago, hey, someone... Not here, but and they, they didn't claim to be a Christian either. Someone uh, visited our church recently, and they made the comment, and they said, why do we have to sing in church? Can't we just get on with the teaching? And for one, I wanted to say, well, that would give me a lot of time to preach, right? But I didn't say that. But one reason is that singing is part of the teaching. It's part of the teaching. I mean... You're learning as you sing, working God's word and his truths into you. And with that being said, we should then carefully think about the songs we do sing, right? If they are teaching us something, we need to be careful about the songs that we are choosing. If songs are not just for entertainment and they're not just to make us feel a certain way, but they're actually teaching and discipling us, then we should make sure that what they are teaching is true and it's in line with the word of God. I would say more important than the emotional impact of the songs is the teaching in them. Songs should be saturated with truth. And I guess the, the, the longer I'm a Christian, I, the more I appreciate. So, so there's a lot of songs out there that are very dramatic, right? Very emotionally moving. The, the music and stuff in the background can be very powerful. But sometimes... 
the lyrics are just pathetic. They're weak, there's nothing there, or even they might even be heretical. And they encourage wrong thinking. And so <laughs> I've found that uh, some of them aren't that way, they're good, but they're just very dramatic. But I've found that, you know, just the, the, some of the songs that have really deep truths in them, uh, those are actually move me more than some of these very loud and powerful songs. It's the, it's the words, it's the truth that we're singing that moves me more than something that has a lot of impact emotionally but not really lyrically, is, if, if that makes sense. But um, songs should be saturated with truths of Scripture. I don't remember who said it or wrote it, but someone said, you know, we're wired to receive food and water, but you have to be careful about what food and water you receive. You wouldn't receive moldy food or contaminated water. Well, in the same way, we're wired to receive music and respond to it, but we have to be careful about what music we receive as the San Quentin prisoners learned the hard way. You know, if I, if I just listen to country music all day, every day, my life, I'm going to be, I've, I've been this guy, I've been obsessed with pickup trucks, dogs, beer, and women, right? That describes my teenage years. Obsessed with those things. I went through a phase where I, I listened to you know, gothic music. I'm not even going to mention the bands. You tell me that I was not a dark and depressed, angry individual. Very powerful. Music is powerful, right? Warren Wearsby said this. He said, perhaps this poverty of Scripture in our churches is one cause of the abundance of biblical... Th- biblical sorry... I'm going to restart. Perhaps this poverty of Scripture in our churches is one cause of the abundance of unbiblical songs that we have today. A singer has no more right to sing a lie than a preacher has to preach a lie. The great songs of the faith were, for the most part, written by believers who knew the doctrines of the Word of God. Many so-called Christian songs today are written by people with little or no knowledge of the Word of God. It is a dangerous thing to separate the praise of God from the Word of God. I think he's, he's got an insight there, doesn't he, on the connection between preaching and singing and how they influence one another. But just because a song is popular, or it sounds good, or it has a catchy beat, doesn't, doesn't mean that it's true. Or that it's fit for use in a church setting. And that's what I appreciate about uh, some of our missionaries in Utah. Uh, Luke and Hannah Allinger who work with Key Radio in Utah. Key Radio is a, a radio ministry there that seeks to reach Mormons with the gospel. And I've sat under their ministry presentations more than once. And they, they, they will tell you that they don't care if a song is a top ten hit. They don't care if it's catchy or anything like that if it's not or if it's unbiblical i mean if it's un, if it's unbiblical they just won't play it they don't care how popular it is they don't care if it's if it's catchy or not they just won't play it because they want to reach mormons with the truth so it doesn't make sense to play unbiblical songs and then there's songs that might be biblically accurate, but 
they're not fit for service in the church either, right? There's a lot of songs like that on the radio. Sometimes we want to hear them in church, but they're not right. Kind of like uh, this week, I was putting a puzzle together uh, with my daughter, and we were listening to some slightly outdated Christian music from 1996. And she asks me, she says, Dad, is it true that they don't serve breakfast in hell? <laughs> if you know, you know, right? Look it up. Newsboys, right? But uh, I said, you know, that's theologically, I think that's pretty accurate. And there ain't no Captain Crunch. If you get anything, it's going to be worms. But, because there's nothing good in hell, right? But... It's accurate, it's biblically accurate, but we wouldn't necessarily play that Newsboy song in our corporate worship service, right? Let's move on. Verse 16, um, Paul mentions three types of songs. You've got psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so psalms, these are from the Old Testament book of psalms, uh, also called the Psalter, uh, the songbook of the Bible. This is what most Christians started out with. This is what the Jews had for their worship services. It was the book of psalms. Uh, for a while, that's about all they had. And then you have song, we have hymns as well. Hymns might refer to songs that are not necessarily in the Psalter, but they're praise songs that are based on truth. And actually, in some of the epistles of Paul, 1 Timothy, Philippians, Ephesians, you see him quoting early Christian hymns in his writings. So archaeologists even have discovered that the first, oh man, it was Colossians 1, 15 through 20, where Paul talks about how Christ is, Ed preached on this not too long ago, Christ is supreme in everything. Early Christians took Colossians 1, 15 through 20, the meatiest part of this book, and they turned it into a hymn. And I thought a lot of these, if you go and you look at some of these hymns, Ephesians 5, 14, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, 1 Timothy 3, 16, these are really meaty hymns. These are really meaty lyrics with a lot of truth to them. But then you've also got spiritual songs, and these are frequently understood as a reference to songs that speak of our enjoyment of life under God. These would be your testimony songs, personal testimony songs. We sing a lot of these today. In fact, I would say uh, there's kind of an imbalance in the music industry today, Christian music industry, on spiritual songs that focus on the personal testimony because we've it's all about me and myself and you know and not so much exaltation of God I think not that there's anything wrong with that and not that and they, they do minister us to us powerfully but I'm saying there's an exaltation element that's often missing with the focus on him and not so much on us because I find personally when we focus on him then we are blessed in return but I think it's healthy to have all kinds of songs in the mix in our local church, I enjoy them all, and God gives us the freedom to enjoy them all. And I hope you have that freedom and conviction that there, you know, you can worship through a psalm, hymn, or spiritual song, even a new song. The Bible says many times, "Sing a new song to the Lord." I think it's a dozen or more times the Bible says that. Sing a new song. Be creative. Write something new, and then sing it. I think it's a it's a great thing. Uh, some churches, like, they want to focus on all the spiritual songs these days, new songs. Some churches, like, you know, <laughs> they just want to sing hymns. And 
Uh, I know of a church who actually had different music at their two different services in the morning. So if you want to sing hymns, you want to sing out of the hymn books, you go to the 8 a.m. service. If you want to sing a new spiritual song, you got to go to the 11 o'clock service. And you can imagine that, obviously, the older generation went to the 8 a.m. service with the hymns. The younger generation went to the 11 a.m. service. And eventually, what do you think happened? Church split, right? It divided that church over the music. And I guess I've thought about that over the years and thought, man, how could this one verse, Colossians 3.16, you know, if if applied, it could have brought healing to the congregation in that area. Uh, let's let's sing them all. Let's enjoy it all. It's all rich, great truths that we can sing, and it doesn't matter what kind of song it is. But you know, somewhat early in my Christian experience, I came across a preacher too who said you can't use drums in church. You ever heard that before? You can't use drums in church. And after I heard that, I took out my massive non-Logos concordance. Right, this is before Logos was cool. And uh, it was a big old concordance, and it was newly acquired because I'm a, you know, a newer believer. And After I heard that, I started looking up in my concordance every word that dealt with music, song, worship, instrument, instruments, choir. And it just went through the whole Bible because my, convict, my conscience had been affected by that guy's preaching. I'm going to a church. They play drums. I don't know if we can play drums. Is this biblical? You know, and and so I had to look it up. I want to see what does God's word have to say, right? You should always do that. And I started to find in the Old Testament, even like David made loud cymbals, crashing cymbals for worship in the Old Testament. He had all sorts of instruments made, harps and cymbals and things like that. It had to be really loud, you know, and, and so. Uh, my conscience, to say the least, was eased from that sort of legalistic statement and uh, released from it, thank God. But there's a whole branch of, branch of Christianity out there today that says you can't use any musical instruments in church. We've all just got to make melody in our hearts. You see, the melody can't be with drums or guitars. It's got to be in your hearts, and so we're just only supposed to use our voices that God gave us. And to that I say, humbug. Basically, because there's all sorts of instruments used in the Old Testament again, and that's not Paul's point. That's just not his point. His point is that that you're supposed to use, you're supposed to make melody in your heart to the Lord. Basically, don't just utter vain and empty words to God in worship. Use your heart. You know, put some heart into it. Think about the words that you're singing and focus on on Him, and, and have some heartfelt praise and affection to back it up. They basically mean it. But that brings up our, our next point. We have two more brief points, and then we'll wrap it up. But um, the music is also transformative, right? Singing is transformative. And we've already established this, so we're not going to spend much time on it. But in, individually, this can influence us, and uh, even congregationally. I would say that worship and song... As a church body, when we sing together, it's going to foster those virtues that we read about in Colossians chapter 3. After you get done singing, when worship, your attitude is probably different than it was before. 
You know, like your attitude getting ready for church this morning and trying to get here on time is probably different than it is right now after you've got done singing. I bet you have more joy, more contentment, more peace. Am I wrong? <laughs> Nobody wants to shake their head yes, right? But I know it is. I know it is. And actually, I would even venture to guess that your blood pressure is even lower. Because that's, the, that's what the studies show. After you get done singing and you, you hear some positive, you know, like you hear the gospel, the word of God, it changes you. Physiologically, it can change you. You're more at peace. You're more generous. You're, you know, because, you know, you might, be, you might come into church with a, a greedy mindset or a, I don't know, a, a discontent mindset. But after you get done singing and you realize... You remind yourself who God is and what he's done for you, then all of a sudden, you're content again. You have more peace, you have more joy, that sort of thing. It changes you. It's transformative. One guy said that while worship offers praise to God, who is certainly worthy to receive it, participation in these worshipful activities creates a giving, thankful, humble, and peaceful spirit within the believer. These practices act as a means of spiritual formation. And then there's one more thing we want to uh, discuss. Uh, singing is ministering not just to us, but first off to the Lord. So Paul says to sing, uh, sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It's directed to God. When we're singing, we're directing our, our voices to him. In a parallel passage in Ephesians 5, he says to sing to the Lord. So singing is ministering to him, and he wants to hear our voices. He created us to sing, and he actually made your voice, the voice that you have, which means it doesn't matter if you are a crow or a canary, he wants to hear your voice. He made your voice because he wants you to hear you sing praises to him. That's, that's a neat thing. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him, through Christ then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So Paul says, look at singing like a spiritual sacrifice that you're offering up to God together. And it's one that's going to be characterized by thankfulness. Why? Because he's our creator and our savior. And we can't help but sing about how good and gracious he is to us. And then just to wrap up the study, let's simply remind ourselves that uh, this is what we were created for. We were created to worship. Verse 17, he, uh, he says basically, this is the perfect verse to close out this entire series with. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him through God the Father. All things, eating, drinking, teaching, working, playing, cleaning, whatever. He says, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And J. Vernon McGee said, this is our yardstick right here for measuring every situation in life. We don't have, we're not like the Old Testament saints in that we have this, you know, giant law that tells us how to behave and how to act in every single situation. 
We don't have anything like that in the New Testament. You see virtuous qualities that you can tell if you're walking in the Spirit based on the results of your life. But he says basically that we operate by this virtue or by this principle right here of this is a great overarching principle that says to do everything in word or deed in his name. And so basically, yeah, we don't we don't have in God's word an answer to on how to respond to every single situation in life, but in life, but we have this great overarching principle that says, can I do this in the name of the Lord Jesus or not? Will this honor his name or not? We could also say, is this worship or not? If I can do it in his name for his honor, then I'm worshiping. But if I can't, then I'm not worshiping. So, great principle for us to end this series on. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this series that we've uh, enjoyed this year. You, you've taught us so much, even myself included, about true and proper worship and what that is and what it looks like, and I'm so humbled to be able to talk about it and uh, show us that we worship constantly. Constantly we are worshiping something. And it's my prayer, Lord, that you would help us to worship you continually, to make it a way of life. Make worship a lifestyle, not just something we do on Sunday, but a lifestyle and one that is encouraged by the corporate gathering that we have here every Sunday morning and we ask continue to ask you for your your blessing on our services here that you would be truly and acceptably properly worshiped among us and it's in Christ's name we pray amen